As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft, and 2021 is already shaping up to be one heck of a year. But never fear, we'll be with you all the way to make sure you never feel alone discussing each and every week, of course, all the greatest stories from the world of football. And for now, Elite Football continues. We'll discuss the arrival of mandatory testing in the EFL finally. But will the FA Cup be wiped out this weekend? Also, Spurs are into a cup final. They'll face a once again impressive Manchester City, who's seen John Stones return to excellent form. So we'll be asking you, what are the best player comebacks you can remember? To help me through it all from the Times, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, and Jonathan Northcroft. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. How are you? It was about to be another wall of silence. I don't know if you guys are ever going to get the gift of this. When I say hello, say hello back. Wait for it. Oh, oh, oh. So you're excited, Tom? I'm excited, you. I, I listened to Monday's show, and I, I must confess, I, I felt a, a big, a big whack of sadness when you were saying about your intros to the show and how we don't bring enough energy and verve. So there I was with a crappy YouTube video from the darts, trying to bring a bit of energy. I'm trying to lift your spirits because I'm guessing you're probably at a bit of a low ebb this morning, potentially after yesterday. <laughs> well, are you referring to the football or the world of politics? No, I think you're focusing on football. Um, football, very much I'm football. Not, I'm, not, I'm not at a low ebb with Manchester United. I told you all, they are what they are. I was going to be reserved about them this season. Sit back, enjoy all the goals as they go in. Unfortunately, there were none last night. Losing to your big rivals, look, it's never the greatest thing in the world. But Manchester United just aren't as good. And, and it was one of those games that you can just say they're better than us. And, and if Man United fans want to disagree, they can disagree. But I, I felt on the night like Manchester City were majestic once again. We spoke about them on Monday, of course. We can start with a mediocre Manchester United beaten 2-0, as I say, by rival City in the League Cup semi-finals. Jonathan... You take this one. It's it's a fourth semi-final defeat for United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. What is the issue with them in semi-finals? <laughs> well, at the risk of annoying you, because I think you tweeted about this last night, Hugh. I mean, as Ollie says, they just keep playing better teams in, in semi-finals. Yeah, I mean, are, are United mediocre? I, I think they were better uh, last night than in, in any of the previous semi-finals. Um, they they went for it a bit more, um, but 
City just had um, well, they had ways of stopping them and ways of penetrating them. And uh, United's, I mean, I mean, you know, you talk about the goals going in. I think United are still at a point where they're looking for um, either to suck teams forward and get a quick ball through um, for a Rashford or a, or a Martial. Or for um, or for Bruno Fernandes and, and City were compact. They defended too well to to be sort of penetrated in that way. Stop United's fullbacks getting forward. Um, so it was left to Bruno, and Bruno had a had a poor night. Um, and that's that's that that's where that's where United that's where United still are. I think. I mean, all along I've been looking at Solskjaer. Maybe you know we've disagreed about this, but in terms of what progress is he making, I do think there's a there's a bit of a plateauing now um, in terms of what United are doing. And clearly, to get onto the next level, they need to do a little bit more than than just you know long counters and Bruno. And then you get to the attacking part of the game. City had that that United didn't, and there was a contrast in the the delicacy, the the rotation City had, the positional play, and you know just the the potency of of a De Bruyne, um, Foden. Um, you know, even even on a night Sterling wasn't at his best. City just had more in that area. So so there is there is a bit of a golf at the moment. Um, and yeah, all these all these all these right. I mean, they're just not as they're not as good as Man City and they weren't as good as Sevilla, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Manchester United fans, Johnny, have been pointing out to me since I tweeted that, but of course, if United win their game in hand, they'll be top of the league. So, so you know, there isn't a golfing class. Clearly, they're, they're on the verge of being the best team in the country. Well, it's not a golfing class, but um, there's a gap. And what's, what United have done, what they've started to do under Ollie, and what, what, where they do have a chance this season is they are become very good against the the other teams again and it's because of that attack in Arsenal that they have it's because of Bruno um, it's because they usually will, will create chances if, if, if you don't defend well enough so they've become really good at that but if you look at the record against the top teams not just City I, mean, I think they've taken three points out of 18 um, you know draws against Chelsea and um, oh City yeah you know, but but a big defeat against Spurs, defeat against Arsenal, so and and then the Champions League against the better teams in the Champions League. So there's a pattern there, and Leicester as well, two two against Leicester. Um, it, it, it is. I'm 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 preparing myself for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer lifting the Premier League trophy and me making a political. You know, a U-turn up there with the politicians of this day. <laughs> so I'm going to start by looking at some positives for Manchester United of late and. I think one of them undoubtedly is Paul Pogba, who has had, for me, some of his best performances. I think he was one of the better players last night. Uh, he was excellent in the game against Aston Villa as well. But it comes down to that thing, of, and Johnny, you've just mentioned it, it's that Oli has had the unfortunate thing of where he started off by being quite good against the big teams and in those big games and made his name and his reputation as manager in those moments and fell fell down in the, against the other teams. The problem, the problem as a manager is you have to build on that and improve. And actually, he's kind of just flipped flipped the trends now. And in games against Chelsea, particularly earlier in the season, that was a terrible nil-nil draw where both teams just looked completely devoid of any creativity or ideas. And you just felt, even at the start of the game yesterday, you saw it line up and you go, okay, right, yeah, McTominay, Fred, Pogba, midfield, Fernandez in the pocket, two quick lads up front, yeah, okay. You might need a bit more sophistication here, Ollie, and that's where 
you just want to see him try something new, different. You know, I literally off the top of me, you know, play play Pogba, who's in form as some kind of false nine with some guys running off him in a more advanced position. Try and find Fernandez some space. You've got to think of something in these games to, that's a bit more. There's a bit beyond something we've seen for the last three years. Because otherwise, they're, they're, as we've discussed, they're going to be the team that will finish fourth and get to semi-finals. I don't think it's personnel necessarily, though. I think look, United were decent in the first half; they had half chances. Um, but the best sides have like structured attacking patterns of play. You know, a good Manchester, although Manchester City didn't score from them last night, you see them back to their best and like overloads down the flanks, two wingers standing right in the touchline, players occupying those little pockets of space inside them, which are a nightmare to mark. United don't have any of that. They have a counter-attack. And, you know, they have a player with a bit of individual craft or guile to release the players with pace. They don't have the same coaching. (laughs) I think, really, we're still back to the manager, personally. I don't want to be too... I think there has been progress. I think people are getting going overboard if they think that Man United are in a title race. No chance. I think we're on the upward curve and it'll come down again. I'm not sure this will be the start of it. They'll probably, you know, there has been some improvement, but I think basically, well, Solskjaer is in, in charge. We need to see something more from him and it would be a, a big surprise to for him to find it, really. The other thing that I'd just quickly say that I would be a bit of a concern is the last particularly last night, Fernandez and Rashford, who were his two go-to men, looked a bit tired to me. They looked a bit leg- leggy. The passes, the touches weren't quite there. And, uh, you know, no no criticism of them as individuals. They've played a lot of football in the last uh, six months to nine months. But if we're getting to this stage of the season already and your two star men are a bit knackered because you've had games where you've rested them. West Ham was a good one where you tried to rest them and then you have to bring them off the bench at half time to rescue the game. That's that's a bit of a worry going forward because I don't see people like Martial and others stepping up. I mean, Martial, to me, talented lad, but I, the persistence of him as a striker in any kind of number nine type role, I don't see it. He'd be better off trying Greenwood, wouldn't he? Mason Greenwood is a superb talent. It might not work, but it's going to be beneficial in a year's time for Mason Greenwood to have played consistently in that role, isn't it? The biggest um, alarm bell was, I think, 10 minutes to go. Bruno got the ball and from about 30 yards just tried an absolutely ludicrous pot shot, which was never going to trouble City. And that just spoke of a guy that's tired, absolutely mentally tired, probably because of having to come up with all the ideas all the time. And yes, Tom, you know, um, Greenwood should have maybe that different thing that he could have done would have been starting Greenwood, not Martial or something like that, because he still looks like the most, you know, use that cliche, natural finisher they've got, apart from maybe Cavani, of course. But yeah, and, and that, maybe that would, that's the risk that Ollie could have taken last night would have been Greenwood, not Martial. Gregor, Solskjaer's now lost as many domestic semi-finals as Sir Alex Ferguson did in 26 years as Manchester United boss. It's a tough comparison, um, that. <laughs> it, it is, but, it, but it's 26 years versus just about two years. So, you know, you can see that there's a big difference. But do you think there is a gap, as Johnny was saying, between Manchester United and City or... Is it, like I've said before, that Manchester United can't be trusted when it really matters? Do they have a mental block? Have you seen a team before, maybe it's playoffs, maybe it's cup finals, have a mental block 
at a particular stage of a competition? And do you think United have one? I mean, I don't. I haven't seen that personally, but I know that you, when you when you look at you hear from players who who are those kind of winners, those iconic players who in the big games would step up and do something. They always say that these are the moments where you need to do it. And I think if you look around Manchester United's team, there are players who are kind of... Fernandez really is probably only one who would, you would imagine could step up and, and do something and win Manchester United the game. You know, I, I, still, I, still look at their, I still look at them defensively and I don't think, I don't think there's a leader in that back four. I don't think Maguire is. I don't really think you know McTominay's grown in stature and he could potentially be, become something like that. That figure from Man United, I think. You'll no, see you pulling a face there. <laughs> but no, I, yeah, it's a hard, hard one to answer because I think Man United were decent, and it's true that they were. You know, they were they they created half chances and they just came up against a better team. And whether that is some of that is psychological or not. I'm not so sure. I think basically when we're going to come on to talk about how good Manchester City were, they just found the rhythm. And when that happens, they are a really kind of ominous prospect to face. I think there's another thing, and this is maybe a question for more for you, Hugh, is when you think back about these semi-finals that Ole has lost, there's a bit of a kind of recurring theme as, as not just tactics looking a bit naive and a bit basic, but They've never really like landed a punch to use that kind of common sporting metaphor. You know, those though you talk about Fergie, those games, if they'd gone behind, they would have piled forward and the other team would have been hanging on. You never feel like you you feel like they're they're hoping for a counterattack and then hanging on. You they never really have a go. Would you rather have, you know, seen him throw a bit more caution to the wind, particularly as he's you know, he's established himself now for whatever we want to say and I want to say he's gonna get the sack, but would you rather have seen him be a bit more, bit bolder, even if it would have meant you'd lost 4-0, maybe 3-0? I think when teams are growing, we've seen this in the past, right? We've seen teams almost get there and then almost it, it click in their minds, either confidence or arrogance that they are good enough to go beyond whatever it is, whatever achievement it is they are seeking to find, you know. Liverpool, for example, they came second in the Premier League, but they got 97 points. It clicked to everyone at the club that they were good enough, more than good enough to win whatever they wanted, even though they hadn't won it that year. And that confidence was there. You know, they went into the big games wanting to dominate and knowing they were good enough to do that if they wanted to, if everything clicked on the day. And I just don't think Manchester United have really reached that point of consistency, if you want to call it that, of of that knowledge that in the big games, they can dominate, they can be the ones who are dictating the, the, the ring position, if you want, you know, forcing the other team into mistakes, having the, 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 the lion's share of possession, creating clear goal-scoring opportunities. They haven't yet got over that hump. And maybe it's, like many Man United fans say, maybe it's, it's an improvement at the moment. They're, they're growing towards that, but then, then just not there yet, and and I think I think Greg is right. Part of that is the manager, but some of that is is the players as well. Because I, I for some of them, for me, you know, it, it will never click. If there's self doubt, though, it, it possibly comes from the fact they can't trust themselves at the back. I think that's still one of their biggest problems. They they you know, and Liverpool, their their confidence, their click came when Van Dijk arrived, and suddenly they could pile forward. And realised that they were, they had some protection and leadership, and United still don't have that. The, the centre halves are okay, but not great. 
Wan-Bissaka is what the seventh choice right back for England. You know, we've been through this before, but they're just and a Man City's revival, which you know that that that's come about. They found solidity again. I just I don't think United can attack in games like that, knowing that they 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 they're going to be protected when they lose the ball. And that's why he has to keep playing McTominay and Fred in the middle. They've they never you know we've been talking about all these going forwards and then taking steps back. He's never got both sides of the game quite in sync. Um, and, a, and a lot of that, I think, is down to the, the lack of quality in, in person now. Well, let's talk about Manchester City clicking as they are at the moment and pick up on that point you make, um, Jonathan, about you know knowing that you're going to be protected at the back. City's midfield was fantastic last night and the midfield area was packed. Um, but Ruben Diaz and John Stones in central defence are growing into you know, a fantastic partnership, you know, I wonder, Gregor, are they sort of the new world-class central defensive partnership when it comes to the Premier League? Well, they certainly look that way at the moment. They, what is it, seven clean sheets in eight games together? And that one goal was Hudson Odoi's kind of late consolation uh, at the weekend. So, yeah, they look, they look brilliant. And I think, you know, there's been a lot today about Stones's kind of uh, re-emergence as a potential England player again and you know he's, he's, he's come back as it were and he has been outstanding but I think always there was a lot in seasons gone by about who he played alongside and the fact that he's playing alongside DS is clearly who looks to me like the leader there was, I watched I just kind of watched him for about five minutes last night in the second half and the way he marshals the line he is he is the, the leader in that back four undoubtedly there was a moment where Zinchenko, I think somebody had been injured and was coming on from the sideline and they were offside, but he's just kept badgering Zinchenko. So remember, he's on your on your left shoulder there behind you. Just remember, because he was out of his vision, constantly doing it and always up and back. And he's, he's, he's definitely the leader. And he's also good, you know, sometimes when you kind of, he's coming out with a ball and you think, oh, what's he doing? He's on the left side rather than the right side. And he just nips past a player and Plays a plays a ball, you know, breaks the lines, and that's the other thing that with these two players, I remember writing a piece last season about the impact that Laporte had in terms of it wasn't just his defensive ability. Man City scored more goals with him in the team because he stepped out and broke the lines. I think it's the same. These two guys are doing the same thing. So look, it's obviously what eight, eight or nine games it's been. So. Um, Still, some time to go, but I think, and I think there's other other, other things that has helped them about the system that City are playing, and that they seem to be a bit more solid in midfield. Um, but yeah, they've they've been outstanding, and and uh, I, I just think City look <laughs> City look like they are back, really are. And I, look, I just wanted like I was wondering why is that? Why is that suddenly? Why are they suddenly back? There've been so many things we've talked about, you know. The, no preparation in pre-season, Aguero out, things like that. Undoubtedly, these things have have contributed to Man City's game. But they've been for 12 months. They've not played like this for 12 months. I can't think of them playing as well as this since probably beating the Liverpool team 4-0 who are half drunk um, after they won the title. <laughs> Seriously, they haven't. And it looks to me like, you know, people were doubting. A couple of weeks ago, we weren't even talking about City. And it looks to me like Guardiola has kind of maybe sat down and said, people are doubting us here. They're doubting us. They're doubting, even doubting the way we play football because 
football, you know, the, the, the kind of tactical journey is about, just now, is about teams who are high pressing, that kind of German school of football. And there's even been doubt about possession dominant football that Guardiola espouses. And I think he's kind of, it looks like he said, guys, you know, how much fun is it to play like this? The way we play, this is the way we play. Let's go and do it. And they've just, bang. I, th- I think in many ways, City had last season the problem that, that Johnny alluded to with Manchester United and that when you poured forward, you weren't entirely sure that those at the back were going to rescue you. You know, Fernandinho playing in central defence was should have been, for me, a stopgap and it lasted way too long and it always felt like he was on the edge. You know, some performances he was brilliant, but it was that last-ditch tackle. It was getting his foot in just before the striker pulled away from him. You know, it was always it always felt very much on the edge. I've said before... I don't think Rodri, when he was left as the only holding midfielder, had any real control over the central midfield area. In fact, I've said before, I think he was pretty much used as a cone in a training exercise for most teams because attacking midfielders were quicker, they were faster. You know, he, he needed serious help. So I think the the signings have made a big difference at Manchester City. And the other thing is, I, I do think he's asked for more responsibility from some of his forward players. Because I, I do think there was a, an over-reliance, I think, on the likes of Sergio Aguero going forward. And obviously, he got injured. Um, Gabriel Jesus being out as well, it sort of was a message to those attacking midfielders, the likes of Foden, Mares, Bernardo Silva. Hold on a minute. Now we need you to chip in. You can't just go out and have a good time and think that Sergio Aguero or Kevin De Bruyne is going to score or Raheem Sterling's going to score and that's going to be it. Sterling's form dropped away. And then it became even more clear without Aguero and Jesus there that, hold on a minute, this is a squad of talented players, but with our th- three main goal scorers not firing, either unfit or um, out of form, what about the rest of you? And I think it took four or five games, but Pep Guardiola is now getting an answer to that with a lot of players each and every week putting their hand up to be, you know, sort of player of the game, which is a big, big plus, a big positive uh, for Manchester City going forward. Um I should say next, uh, Guardiola will be taking on Jose Mourinho in the EFL Cup final because Spurs beat Brentford by two goals to nil. Jose versus Pep on the 25th of April. Long way to go before that match. But, Tom, can you predict what we might be discussing when it comes to these two managers' different approaches? You tra- now, remember, Hugh, I tried to start this episode <laughs> in good good, good spirits and bring some nice levity. If you're heading me down the anti-football route, we're not going to get along. <laughs> whoa, whoa. I never said it. I never said it. You said it. Not going to get along. I would just say quickly on Manchester City and, you know, things that Jose Mourinho is uh, known for. In my opinion, City have been quite solid all season. That seemed to me to be the basis. And that perhaps links to what you were saying about how they were last season. I remember watching them uh, in the match in October against Arsenal, but quite a poor Arsenal side, and they only won 1-0. And Pep was so on at them the whole time, you could see he was pushing them to be structurally, you know, organised, in shape, pressing all over the place. And if you take away the Leicester game, I was looking at their scores this season. If you take away the Leicester game where they conceded five, I think they've only conceded about 10 goals, 11 goals all season. Um, and, and to me, that's been uh, quite fascinating to watch, really. And it'll be fascinating when we come to this final against Jose Mourinho's. Jose obviously did a, did a, did a Jose job on Pep in that 2-0 win. Pep will be incredibly mindful of that performance, incredibly mindful of 
Spin running in behind and Harry Kane flicking the ball over and not pressing free kicks and things. So it's going to be incredibly interesting to see because I wouldn't be surprised if it almost tries a slightly rope-a-dope tactic on Mourinho and says, okay, well, I'm not going to let you play your game. I'm going to put you in all other areas and I'll get the victory that way. That seems to me to be... That was, you know, if you think about the Chelsea game, Chelsea were on top for the first 10, 15 minutes and then City slowly came into it and then bang, 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 game over. I wouldn't be surprised to see something similar come into play. I was at the, um, I was at the Spurs game and, and that was the last time City, I think, did play with that naivety or naivety is maybe not the right word, but that, that vulnerability they had last season. Um, you know, I think, I think since then, Stones came into the team um, he started to do things, different things up front. That that day they had Jesus, and and he didn't lead the line properly. I think he's much better using rotation up front and and the false nine with De Bruyne's been really successful. But that 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 two 0 seemed to be the time that they drew a line, um, and have stopped being quite as easy for counter attacking teams to to pick off. And I agree, Tom. I think I think for him to win, he just has to resist that. Um, that sort of stupidity or over enthusiasm that they, they that they had in that game and, and and did have at certain points last season, um, but of course you know we've been talking about protection again that day he he, he didn't have Fernandinho in midfield he had he had Rodri and they're just much better um, the other way around he, I think they can attack a bit more um, with, with with security but I think they've also become a bit wiser um, since that match and and. I think, yes, Jose will have to do something a bit different in this game to, to, to win it. How confident, Gregor, do you think Jose will be, though, um, of earning Spurs' first trophy for what will be 13 years? I think he'll... Uh, look, he's a winner, isn't he? I know that's a cliche, and I know it's, but it's true. He kind of, we're talking about those, these, this kind of something intangible that a manager can sort of impart to, to a team um, and what you know is our Manchester United missing that now even when Man- Manchester United weren't you know <laughs> they weren't playing great football and nothing it wasn't all rosy he still won trophies with Manchester United um, it's what he does so it, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if he killed the game and <laughs> sorry Tom, <laughs> and uh, and you know scored a goal from a set piece or um, on a, on a counter attack Still, because I've seen this season that Spurs are absolutely devastating at their best uh, playing that way. So it wouldn't be a surprise to me. But at the moment, keep coming back to that word rhythm that he that Pep Guardiola uses. They just have found that, and it's you know it, it's great to watch. And it's but it must be really ominous for the rest of the league. Absolutely. And I think it'll be a great final, a League Cup final to look forward to. But Manchester City could make it four of them on the bounce, which would be pretty remarkable as well. Long way to go. As I say, we've got to wait till April 25th for the Carabao Cup final. Uh, But I'm sure it's going to be one for us to relish. And remember, if you relish the podcast, if you enjoy it, give us a five star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever you use. Make sure you're subscribed as well. You won't miss the next episode. Up next, though, uh, we're going to talk testing 
and the cup theme will continue as well. But to hear and read more from the likes of Paul Hurst, who's written about why Aguero's time at City will soon be over, or if Thomas Tuchel will be a good fit at Chelsea by Constantine Eckner, then get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and Sunday Times. You can get it on all of your devices. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Up next, let's talk testing. Important developments have been made outside the Premier League because the Footballers' Union, the PFA, will fully fund testing for players and staff at English Football League clubs twice a week to help catch asymptomatic coronavirus cases earlier so they can combat the new variant, of course, in the United Kingdom at the moment. That all starts on the 11th of January. Before that... Only the players were tested in the EFL after the international break. So it will be a big change for a lot of EFL clubs. Um, Gregor, it's an important step, but maybe, as some chairman have been saying in the EFL, it's come 10 months too late. Absolutely. Look, first of all, it is a, it is a big step because <laughs> the EFL's kind of strategy this season has been to kind of fly by the seat of their pants. It has been... You know, if a player comes down with symptoms, uh, they isolate. It doesn't even mean that it's always their teammates are, are tested. And obviously, the vast majority of players are asymptomatic. So without question, there have been players who've been playing with coronavirus uh, in, in the lower leagues in particular. And it all comes down to money. Um, and I, you know, I find that's, it's, it's a positive step, but I also find that the timing is unfortunate to say the least for some clubs in the FA Cup because they, as I say, they've not been mandated to test all season um, which in the last month, you know, 40 plus games I think it's 50, 54 games in all now in the EFL have been postponed so the last month has been a write-off, particularly in League One and this this wasn't introduced um, and then they introduced it just before a team like Shrewsbury are going to play uh, Southampton 
in the FA Cup or Morecambe are going to play Chelsea in the FA Cup. Um, and obviously, <laughs> the last month having no tests means that the likelihood of an outbreak has increased and the clubs go to these games now. Um, Shrewsbury look like they have perhaps up to 10 positive tests and they might have to field a youth team or the game might be off or whatnot. So undoubtedly a positive step, but it has come too late. And there's also a question about... Uh, it looks like it could be the, the lateral flow, flow tests, which are not the same as the kind of gold standard tests that are being used in the, they're not quite as accurate either, and they're a fraction of the cost. So again, we're talking about money where health is involved. And personally, I think that's a bit un, unpalatable. Should be enough money in the game. There is enough money in the game. And it's been, you know, there's been a lot of hand-wringing over, over funding in, in football in the last, in the last year during the coronavirus but where health is involved and safety uh, I think it should have been in place from the start a uniform approach throughout professional football should have been in place from the start Jonathan it's reported that the PFA is spending the five million pounds for the rest of the season to conduct all this testing and they have been criticized in the past over how they spend their money so how important is it that the PFA are at the, the forefront of this really important I mean <laughs> To echo Gregor, it's overdue. And it, 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 it strikes you as exactly the kind of thing the PFA should have been doing all along. It always strikes you that the PFA don't spend enough actually on um, on players. I mean, Gregor will have a better insight into that. And, and they do do a lot of work that's not seen. Um, but the headline spends have tended to involve Gordon Taylor and, and, and sort of vanity things. But... It's clearly the organisation starting to change with him, sort of starting to step away from power. Um, it's it's probably good for the optics, as they as they say in football, because all along um, there's been a a distaste from the public that that football hasn't been seen to be working together. That there's been too much self interest. So late in the day, the fact that players, the league, are getting together is 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 a good sign. Um, but maybe, maybe slightly too late, as Gregor says. I wouldn't be certain about the the, the five million um, cost as well, given that, as I say, these these look like being lateral flow tests. Um, I know I think it's been said that it's about four thousand pounds per team per round of testing, uh, and I think these will be cheaper. So, and I think the PFA have been there's been a lot of fingers pointed at the PFA for a long time. For various reasons, and some of them are justified. But there is also a line of thinking where you would say that it should be an employer's job to ensure the safety of their employees. I would say that that's true in most regards, but in this instance where clubs are really struggling and they can't afford to quite simply put their hands in the pocket to that degree and test the players, the PFA with reserves of £60 million plus in their bank this is the right thing for them to do. And I think they probably should have done it sooner. Uh, Tom, across the EFL this season, I think Greg has said already, is it 54 games? I think he said uh, have been postponed for coronavirus related reasons. Now that we've got these tests coming in, do you think the next few weeks are going to be massively impacted in the EFL to the point where it will change the competition materially? There's two elements to that for me personally. I mean, firstly, as a fan, hearing about increased testing makes me paranoid and worried that Lincoln's games are going to be called off this weekend. We're playing Peterborough and it's on Sky Sports and it's the first 
time to do that, I'm going to be able to watch a game on the telly uninterrupted by iFlow's bugs. And I'm very, very excited and completely selfishly, I'm like, please don't let this game be called off because I'm going to be able to watch the game on a big screen, not on my laptop with it buffering. Um, So there's that completely selfish element as a fan. But there is, as you say, there is a worry that now we've started down this path of playing the season, you suddenly bring in more testing. As Gregor says, there's been people playing undoubtedly with with uh, the virus and being asymptomatic, you're going to get more, more positives. I mean, and as I said on a previous show, now we've gone down this route, you're going to have to maybe change the parameters for which you decide to play a game. If so many people have got positive tests, are you going to allow it to go ahead? You know, Lincoln played Wimbledon last weekend. Wimbledon had quite a lot of players out. They actually asked for the game to be called off and it it went ahead anyway. We, we beat them with a much stronger squad uh, of players available to us and they could have been within their rights to be upset but then they would have also gone well if we call this off now when the hell are we going to play a team near the top of the league and you're going to have this crunch of where we've started down this season we've got to finish it clubs have got to keep playing because let's not forget only a few months ago we were talking about clubs being on really hard times yeah, we've got this financial bailout, but uh, you know what was it? Five hundred grand or something per club. I mean, that was maybe on the basis that we were all thinking we'd get some fans back this season. That money ain't going to go a long way, in my understanding. Having spoken to clubs down in the league, that'll just about tide you over. You suddenly start going games are off, TV money. It, I think it's it's obviously great for people's health. Don't get me wrong that there there's increased testing happening, but there is a big knock-on going to happen for football clubs and the game itself if, 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 if we carry on and if we don't maybe adapt how we approach positive tests. It ties into the conversation we had recently about, uh, is, it, does it, is it 14 players? You, know, you have to have 14 players and that's the rule, steadfast rule. Because even in the FA Cup, I'll come back, to, I should also clarify that the FA funded the testing for, the, for all the non-Premier League clubs in the FA Cup. So again, and that's separate, that had been planned before the EFL announced this new testing regimen. So that also gave the impression that, you know, (laughs) Morecambe are are, uh, travelling over the, over, you know, beyond the castle gates into the mighty Chelsea and they need to test whether they're clean enough or not, kind of thing. It's like, it's not, it's not a good look, but again, the, the, the rule was, if you can't field 14 players, you're out. That was that was reported earlier in the week, and now they seem to have already rolled back on that because it seems like there's a there's serious doubt over the Shrewsbury Southampton game. They're not going to make clubs do that, and and they shouldn't make clubs do that because you know how many times will a Morecambe player go and play Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, um, and should they really be punished for having not been asked to test all season and then suddenly testing before a huge game? And discovering that they were there was an outbreak in the camp, so I think Tom's right. Essentially, what, what needs to be played, and I, and I think again, it should be uniform, just like the testing, is what the what the boundaries are, what the rules are. How many? If if it is, you can, you've got fourteen players, you've got to field them. Then stick to it. If it's not, then we need to decide what the parameters are. Uh, I'll come to the parameters and and whether we should forfeit or postpone at this stage of the season next, but. 
As you mentioned, the FA Cup third round is upon us this weekend. And as you rightly say, because of the FA's funding, EFL clubs are going to have those tests probably today ahead of those matches at the weekend. Um, And we could see a a raft of positive tests now. And many of those games called off. Um, Jonathan, what, what, what... what do we do in that in that circumstance? You know, Premier League clubs will not want, I, th- I think, to take on clubs from the EFL if there is a chance that there might be a, a further outbreak at the clubs that has happened subsequently to those tests being conducted. I guess the timing, the traditional timing of the, the, the third round is, is disastrous given where we are in the pandemic. Not least for the FA who, who need this to be successful financially and, and might have to recompense the broadcasters for games like Southampton that get called off. But I don't see any way around just um, cancelling games uh, or forfeiting games because there's just no room whatsoever in the calendar to to do anything different. Um, you know, and, and this it feels like football's kind of got away with it so far in COVID in terms of making it look like uh, it's more, you know, more or less business as normal things are carrying on. But this third round seems like the moment to me where um, that kind of veneer has fallen away. And, and we can see that this is, this is not really, this is not really um, football as we know it. This is not really a season as we know it. So many things are going to be different forfeited games. You look at that, that um, Morecambe tie, that was mentioned. I mean, those players, if it does go ahead, that those players will be walking out in an empty Stamford Bridge in fairly forlorn circumstances. You look at Chorley Derby, which I'm supposed to be going to at the weekend. You know, Chorley's big day might be against Derby's under-18s. Um, Marines hosting of Spurs will be um, to nobody and there'll be games off. So it, 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 I don't think we can pretend that this is going to be in any way um, the magic of the cup. This is just trying to get through it, to be honest, and getting through it just to keep the thing alive and, and keep some money coming in for the FA. Uh, Tom, do you agree? Do do games go ahead with 14 available players or if a club returns six or seven positives, do you think it should be called off? It, it's such a tough one because I'm sat here listening to it all and thinking, well, you know, these clubs and players, we have to remember, as I said, both as a fan, but also professionally, you know, these guys are, going out there and carrying on in the midst of this awful situation for the benefit of us on this podcast, being able to talk about football and for the benefit of my dad, who is in his late sixties and retired and absolutely bored stiff and has got me going, please don't go to Morrison's because you're bored because I don't want you to get this virus. Seriously, please don't. And if he doesn't have the Peterborough game to look forward to, I've genuinely have no idea what he's going to be doing with his week. So these guys are putting themselves out there we have to remember that. And so I'm very hesitant to say I want them to go ahead. But for lots of reasons, I think we have to try and make the games go ahead in some way. And if that's by, as Gregor and I have said, changing the parameters a bit, you know, because as I say, you know, there's a financial element to it as well. The clubs lower down the pyramid are just so desperate for it to carry on. For players as well, there'll be pl- players, think of players who are out of contract in these clubs who maybe need to be in the in the public eye, in the eye of the football world, in order to, if things are better in the summer, get a new contract elsewhere. If, if they're drifting out of the game, late 20s, don't get a new contract. 
I just, for so many reasons, as selfish as it feels during a global pandemic when there's a rampant new variant to say, please let the game go ahead in some way. I, I, for all sorts of reasons, I want it to continue. Look, when, when, it's, when Chorley are playing derbies, Derby are the bigger side there, and Dar- they're playing Derby's reserves and youth team, you know, that's not such a bad look. If, if Chelsea play Morecambe's kids and beat them 14-0 or something, you've got to start to think to yourself, what are we doing here? And like, and as I've already said, the, they have this, the cards were already stacked against them because who is more likely to get a, an outbreak? The club who haven't been tested all season or the club who've been tested once a week and then up to against the twice a week when there was a new variant uh, emerged. So, you know, the, the FA Cup is supposed to be uh, this competition that's based on democratic values. And really this season it's not. It certainly won't be if they force teams, lower league teams, to play kids and, on, and, f- and they face the prospect of being humiliated or if they make them forfeit the game and lose, potentially lose money and lose uh, a kind of a memorable moment. Whether or not there are fans in the stand, still, I've spoken to a Morecambe player this week and the journey he's been on to get to um, to this stage and to play at Stamford Bridge, I guarantee you he would be devastated if, uh, this is Carlos Mendes Gomez, by the way, Morecambe's top scorer, he would be devastated if he couldn't play there. Uh, Jonathan, I know managers in the Premier League have spoken about the um, the number of fixtures. They wouldn't be happy to see games postponed and, and put in, in a couple of weeks' time. Let's be realistic about that. So if, if there are six or seven positive tests at a club this weekend, whether that be Chorley, Morecambe, Derby, whoever else, are forfeitures now appropriate or do you think postponements should still be happening? I think it just has to be forfeitures. There's just not. There's no room. There's no room to to postpone and put these fixtures in elsewhere. But I mean, a Premier League club can always play a game. As we've been saying, they've got more resources. They're on. They're under 18s or under 23 should be capable. Um, I, I, in a, in a way, there's no excuse for a a bigger club to forfeit a game. Um, they can they can field a team, but I just don't see any way around it. You know, it's. We are where we are, um, and it just feels like this is a grim moment for so many reasons um, in the world. And I guess in the bigger picture, um, sporting integrity of the FA Cup, blah blah blah, isn't the isn't the priority right now for everyone. It's just a case of getting through. But if there's any financial loss or or, or financial element to this, then then clearly it's the smaller clubs should be protected, and and the bigger ones should should take a hit from forfeitures. I think we'll see what's going to happen with this one. That news will come over the next 48 hours or so. The impact of COVID-19 on this season's FA Cup, no doubt we'll be discussing it on Monday as well. One final question on it though, Jonathan, if there are major issues, could or should the FA Cup this season be cancelled? I don't think so for the reasons that we've been saying that, that the smaller clubs need it and frankly, Supporters need it, and and that after all is why football's going ahead. I mean, I you know I, I I'm lucky enough to still get to go to games, but every time you go to a game, you are sitting in an empty stadium watching something that's got the feeling of a training match to a certain extent. It looks much better on TV than it does in the flesh, and every time you're there, you you kind of the penny drops. Why you're there? You're there because we're just trying to keep something going 
trying to keep something going for fans, trying to keep something going for the financial health of, of, of the sport itself, but it's not real. It's not as we know it and it won't be as we know it until hopefully next season. Um, and this might be the worst hit element of the, of the whole season, this FA Cup. But in the bigger picture, uh, it, it, you know, as I said, it's, it, it's a case of muddling through. What do you think, Tom, Gregor? Could the FA Cup be, be cancelled? Tom, I'll start with you. I mean, I th- think there's an element here of where, you know, we do a lot of kicking of footballing authorities and government and things at times during this whole crisis. But there's an element of hindsight, isn't there, where if you could go back and know that the virus was going to come around again and hit with much more ferocity now at this time of year you know only a few months ago we were talking about fans back and everything's great and bail out and here we here we go and yes a few of us were like guarding against that and a bit cautious but we're all enthusiastic and things if you could have gone back to the start of the football season and all those negotiations i would like to think even with the financial desires there would have been things like you know the efl trophy you know as i say lincoln are playing peterborough but then on Tuesday, Lincoln and Accrington have got an EFL trophy game, which, you know, the, the Papa John's trophy or whatever. Accrington, not just, they had a game called off because of frost, frost, I think, or waterlogged pitch without even COVID. They've got a backlog of games that's ludicrous. They're doing quite well in the league. You know, it, it, with hindsight, perhaps we would have gone back and said, okay, the chances are this is a winter, you know, virus. It's going to come back with a vengeance in December, January. Let's let's be clever about this. Let's bung everyone a little wedge to acknowledge the FA Cup and wipe it out. But again, it's this thing of what I said before. Now you've started. I've started, so I'll finish. That's what it feels like with football at the minute. It, it feels like it feels like a mastermind question. I've started, so we have to finish. And all these things: Papa John's Trophy, Diddy Clubs, Champions League, all the way up. We've got a Euros Olympics. We're being told the virus is going to be, you know, going down in the summer. Everyone's going to be vaccinated. We've got a plow on through this absolute misery. That, that's what it feels like <laughs> to me. That's what it feels like, and it's not—it's not fair on a lots of people. It's not fair on lots of people, but it, that, and it doesn't. There's lots of logic that goes against what I'm saying, but that's what it feels like. We started, so we'll finish. It is all money. It it's is money. all money. So you know, you're asking why it started. Start so finish. It started because of money. They all started because of money. The AFL needed the funding from those competitions. The FA needs the funding from the FA Cup. So as long as they can play on through, they will do. Yeah, well, to keep the mastermind theme going, I don't think it would have taken a genius to have worked out there were going to be issues further down the line. But uh, we will see what happens with the FA Cup. And as I say, I'm sure we'll be discussing it, um, the action on the field and off of it, I think, uh, on Monday's podcast as well. But it is a bit of a cup theme today. So we mentioned him earlier on, John Stones, back to his best, it seems, for for club firstly and maybe country to come. He scored his first goal in over three years in Manchester City's win over at United in the League Cup semi-final. So we wanted to, to, to mark his excellent return to form by discussing some of football's best comebacks. And so many of you have been getting involved with some excellent responses. I'll come to those in a moment. But gentlemen, can you think of a, a great footballing comeback that, that immediately springs to mind for you? I'm not going to go on about Ole Solskjaer again. Um, so I'll spare you that. But what, what he did to come back at Manchester United after those injuries was unbelievable. But the one that springs to mind for me is Zidane for France in 2006. You know, I was lucky enough to be at that World Cup. And 
guy that, you know, France were disastrous in the year of 2004. Um, he retired a miserable tournament, came back uh, just before the World Cup and as a swan song, I just don't think you could you could you could beat that. These were his last games as a professional footballer because he retired for Real Madrid as well at the at the end of two thousand and six. Um, you know, he 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 scored against Spain um, in the second round. He was man of the match against Brazil in the quarterfinal. He scored the winning penalty against Portugal to get the final. Takes a Penenka penalty in the World Cup final and scores with it. Um, Marco Materazzi and the headbutt, the ultimate way for a, a, a warrior like Zidane to to go out, just a script that nobody could write. But he was magical. He was magical in Germany. Um, he probably should have been player of the tournament. I think Cannavaro won it. He was absolutely magical. And, and these were his last games as a professional footballer. Unbelievable. I, I will forever hate the year 2006 for the fact that Fabio Cannavaro won the Ballon d'Or ahead of Zinedine Zidane, which was is, is for me up there with FIFA's biggest corruptions. And I will say it loudly and proudly on the podcast. Disgraceful. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Gregor, Tom, who wants to go next? I'll go for a, for a current one, just because I saw it pop up on Twitter this morning. I'll be blatantly honest about that. Um, but it's a great story. Duncan Watmore. Uh, Sunderland to, to from Altrincham in uh, sorry Sunderland signed him from Altrincham in 2013. Burst onto the scene, he was kind of bundle of energy, Premier League player, scored a few goals, and then he just had the worst time with injuries. I, I did a quick tally on the transfer mark marked and the series of knee and ankle injuries have kept him out for 841 days in total. And obviously in the time. He suffered all these these injuries. Sunderland plum, plummeted from the Premier League to League One, and he was released in the summer. Um, didn't have a club until November, and then he he was signed by Middlesbrough in November. Short term contract. Scored five goals in eight games, and there was interest from reportedly kind of other clubs, and he just signed a two new two and a half year contract today uh, with Middlesbrough after potentially looking like his career could have been absolutely on the rocks. Uh, and he's only 26. So he's still got time to, you know, that's a comeback at 26. It's a great comeback. So Duncan Watmore. Could fire Middlesbrough to a place in the Premier League. Absolutely. Who knows for next season, yeah. which would which would be amazing. Um, Tom, anyone stood out for you? Yeah, I've had a couple of suggestions myself. Um, Sam says uh, Serge Nabry, not good enough for Tony Pulis's West Brom and now one of the, <laughs> best, players, <laughs> one of the best, players, best players in Europe. Dave, Dave says Danny Ings, who's obviously now you know one of the top strikers in the Premier League after injury and a difficult time at Liverpool. Chris says Gareth Bale. I mean, that in terms of a turnaround to his career at Tottenham, 20-odd games without a win, he was considered the jinx, wasn't he? Then he's suddenly one of the best players in the world and going to Real Madrid. Uh, ben says Jonas Gutierrez came back from uh, cancer to return to football. That's a kind of a different approach to the old comeback ideal. My my choice goes back to the 2006 World Cup as well, and I've gone for Owen Hargreaves because to me, it's not just about his personal story, but to me, he embodies a lot of how English football fans changed their approach to modern football. And that, that World Cup, I think Hargreaves, and I can remember being one of these fans myself, but I wasn't booing him, but he did get booed, I think, in one of England's games for his performances. And this idea of what 
English football fans not understanding what Owen Hargreaves was and what he brought to the table. And this was a guy who'd won, at that point, four Bundesliga titles with Bayern Munich and the Champions League. And, you know, he was a very sophisticated defensive midfielder who Sven-Goran Eriksson, obviously, you know, guy knows a thing or two about European football, saw something in. And English football fans were booing him going, you know, and people like John Terry had to come out and defend Owen Hargreaves and say, no, this guy's really good. Then by the end of the tournament, I think he got man of the match in a few of the games in the knockout stages. And slowly fans are going, hang on a minute, this guy's quite good, isn't he? Maybe it's quite important in football to have someone who can you know, pull the strings and pinch the ball back. And OK, maybe this is going to be a thing in football in the late 2000s and into the next decade. Then he goes to Manchester United and fine, he has injuries and struggles, but he's a key component in the team that wins a league title and Champions League. I think I remember him scoring, he scored a free kick against Arsenal in a league match in which United won 2-1, which I think was quite important in the title race. And in the Champions League final, he played in a slightly kind of almost like right wing position. He played right wing, yeah. Basically, you know, we talked earlier about tactics to try and stop Ashley Cole. And it was a fantastic battle of that game, you know, back and forth. He was brilliant. He scored in the penalty shootout. Everyone remembers Cristiano Ronaldo missing. I always think in penalty shootouts, the next guy for that team who steps up and it was Owen Hargreaves, steps up, bang, scores. So for me, not just his own story, but for what he, the turnaround in perception of English football fans as to the appreciation of the defensive midfielder, um, um, my vote is for Owen Hargreaves. We had a lot of people get in touch on social media about this, so I'll try and um, go through as many of them as I can. Uh, the first one's a big Celtic shout, Bertie Old who I think went away to, if anyone who's a Celtic fan here can help me out, Birmingham City, was it? For four years. Yeah, Birmingham City, I think, for four years. He was part of the European Cup winning team, wasn't he? Exactly, exactly. Uh, Within a few weeks, he scored two in our Scottish Cup final win. Two years later, played a lead part in our European Cup win. That is from Jim, so thank you for that. Uh, Andrew says Salah and De Bruyne, both Chelsea rejects, have come back to be, of course, at the top of football. A lot of Spurs fans getting in touch about Jurgen Klinsmann as well, whose second stint at the club, I think he scored nine goals in 14 or 15 games. Um, some Spurs fans saying to help us stave off relegation, but I think it, it, in the end it was pretty comfortable. Uh, Ricardo says Paolo Rossi, who I know we've mentioned on the podcast this year, of course. Uh, 1982 World Cup after his ban. Uh, Luke says Gareth Southgate from missing the penalty in 96 to, to overseeing a shootout win for England as well. Naveen says Henrik Larsson after his broken leg for Celtic. Uh, Whiskey Coppite, a good one here, says Jordan Henderson, who nearly went to Fulham, of course, um, derided, of course, by a lot of football fans, including those at Liverpool, but came back to lift the Premier League and Champions League as well. Joel says Claudio Ranieri, who was sacked by Greece for losing to the Faroe Islands, then became a league winner for the first time in his career with Leicester City. Uh, this one's a bit tongue-in-cheek from Danny. says Ledley King every time he played for Spurs, it was a comeback. My good mate Will has said Ralph Hasenhüttl's comeback after the 9-0 defeat. Uh, a mate of mine, Sean, says Wolves defender Jody Craddock. Um, I- I'm not sure I can say this on the podcast, but he said our song for him was there's only one Jody Craddock. He used to be shy, now he's all right. 
walking in a Craddock wonderland. So he clearly had an upturn in form as well. Uh, Chris says Brazilian Ronaldo. Only time the two players will be spoken about in the same sentence, Craddock and Ronaldo. Uh, 2002 World Cup after his disappointment in losing the 98 final in that manner as well. Ryan says Beardsley's second spell at Newcastle United. Uh, Rob says Skulls coming back from retirement at Man United. And we'll we'll end on a Spurs one as well. My mate Gary says Sissoko. At Spurs, his upturn at Spurs of late in the last 18 months or so. Again, lots of Spurs fans wanted him out the door. So John Stones has inspired a raft of great suggestions. Thank you to everyone uh, who got in touch to help us out with that as well. And thank you to Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark uh, for being with me for the last hour or so on today's podcast. Thank you for listening. That is all for now. You can subscribe to The Times. You can get more football analysis and insight. You can sign up today and get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We'll see you on Monday discussing the FA Cup third round, of course. Enjoy your weekend. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.